Well, take your Bibles this morning, turn with me to James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, we're taking a little break from our study through the Gospel of John, Lord willing, in uh, two or three weeks, we'll be right back there. But we have started the year with this series called Hindrances to Life for two reasons. There is a longing and an observation by your pastors, a longing and an observation. The longing comes from the first picture that we've been looking at for the last few weeks, and that is a longing for us to experience the fullness of life that God has designed for us to live. God's design is that we would receive the fullness of his spirit. I think we have that picture. Do we have that picture? There we go. Uh, This longing is that this would be a picture of your heart, (laughs) that you would be receiving from the outpouring of the spirit, which comes to give life. And if that doesn't make sense to you, I started the year a few weeks ago with a, with a sermon on how the spirit gives life. And so God's vision for our life is that the spirit of God would come into our hearts moment by moment, filling every crevice, every longing, every desire of our heart. And then as a result of that, we would flourish. We would have this kind of Psalm 1, uh, healthy, fruit-bearing life that God has designed us for. God has called us to experience abundant life. And that seems elusive to many of us, but it shouldn't. It's something we want to lead you into. So this series begins with a longing that you would experience that. It also begins with an observation. The observation is the second picture that there are hindrances to us experiencing the life God has for us. All of us have hindrances. We all have some big things, some small things, some known sins, some obvious sins, some things we don't see. David often asked the Lord to forgive him of hidden faults. There are countless things that we don't know about that are hindering the life of God in our heart. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that it seems that the more I walk with Jesus, the more I know him, it's not the less sin I see, but the more sin I see. Uh, The Lord uncovers more and more hindrances to life. But one of the roles of a pastor is to think carefully about specific hindrances in each generation. So there may be things unique to us in some ways that may have not been primary hindrances in a a previous generation. In reality, most of the things are the same, but what is it for our context and for our people? What are the things that are hindering you from experiencing the life of God? So we spent some time as a staff thinking about this. I've told you this before. And one of the things that kept coming up over and over as we just kind of observed people is this idea of busyness, of being rushed and, and hurried, of not having any margin, being distracted or overcommitted. And it's certainly true. The reality is our souls can't grow in those conditions. That atmosphere of distraction and being overcommitted and hurried and rushed, our souls can't grow in that atmosphere. And so the time in which we live with so many distractions isn't really naturally conducive to healthy souls, is it? We have way too many things that we can distract ourselves with. And the reality is the primary thing that Jesus demands from us, listen to this, The primary thing that Jesus demands for us in order for us to experience life and for our souls to be healthy is the one thing that we least like to give him. Time. Space. 
Quiet time, undistracted time, no screen time, phones down time, isolated time. The one thing that our souls demand is the one thing we least like to give, and that's just undistracted time. One of the realities of being a pastor in the 21st century is the recognition that people would much rather give their money than they would give their time. And people don't like giving their money, but they would rather give their money than their time. It is easier at Prince to take an offering than it is to ask for volunteers. That's true. It is much easier to take an offering than it is to get volunteers because we would much rather write a check than we would surrender our time to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But our souls need time. And there is a conversation to be had here about stillness and being quiet before the Lord. I have preached on this a little bit over the last year, but I told you a while back, that at the beginning of last year, I decided I need to, after I read my Bible, to just spend more time just quiet before the Lord. And so I decided I would start with 15 minutes of just being quiet after reading and praying, nothing else, just, just quiet. And the first day I did it, it was incredible. I thought, this is, I can't believe this. I thought it would be hard, but I thought, man, I've spent, I've doubled it. Like this has been 30 minutes. This has been unbelievable. And I look at the clock and it was like two minutes. It felt so long just sitting and doing nothing. And so there is a conversation to be had about our busyness and our distractions and how hurried we are, but I don't think that's the root issue. I think when we have that conversation, we're missing a deeper conversation. And I'm sensing that there is a big conversation going on just in Christendom right now about being hurried and distracted, and that's, that's good. I just don't think that's the core issue. I don't think our spiritual lives are suffering because of busyness. I think our spiritual lives are suffering because of apathy. You have time. And as a matter of fact, you have enough time to do everything God has called you to do. But you don't have enough time to do everything God's called you to do and a thousand other things God has not called you to do. You don't have enough time to do all that. But you, we all have time. Everybody's got time. And we're, we're making decisions about our time and how we're choosing to spend our time. And the reason that our spiritual lives are suffering is not because we don't have time. It's because we don't care. It's because that's not priority. If it was priority in our lives, then we would give it time. And so I think a secondary issue is that we're so busy and so distracted. I think a primary issue is that we're not slowing down because we do not have desire, drive, and discipline in our spiritual lives. That's what I would say spiritual apathy is. It is a lack of desire and drive and discipline in our spiritual lives. I think that's the missing piece. So as I was thinking about this this week, I found myself going kind of a deep dive into the the seven deadly sins, we often neglect those. We don't think about them much because of their connection with Catholicism, but the reality is they're extremely helpful and they tend to be the seven core sins, I would say. Uh, I think there's a case to be made that almost every sin flows out of these seven and so they do deserve some thought. But one of the ones that's most often overlooked and the one that's really most often debated since the fourth century when these were first kind of uh, created is the sin of sloth, of sloth. Now, when we think of sloth, we may think of a kind of cute South American animal. I don't know, not really cute, but maybe cute. And I think the first thing that comes to our mind is laziness. But that's not it. Spiritual sloth is not laziness, it's more indifference. 
It's more just a lack of care. It's a lack of concern, a lack of desire. And the reason it's important to make that distinction is because there are some of you here who, like me, hate laziness. You hate laziness. I've spent way too much of my life terrified that someone was gonna think I don't work hard. Like, you may hate laziness, but you realize it's possible to despise laziness, but to be a spiritual sloth, to be hardworking, and driven and disciplined in a thousand different areas, but apathetic and lazy and a spiritual sloth. And I often find that sometimes those who are most committed to a solid, strong work ethic might have misunderstood that they are extremely lazy in areas that matter most, while they work really hard in areas that don't matter as much. The Puritan John Owen wrote a lot about this. I would, I would really encourage you uh, to at some point in your life be more familiar with his writings. They can be difficult, but I would start with a little book called The Mortification of Sin. John Owen writes a lot about indwelling sin and how to deal with sin. And as I was thinking about that this week, I realized that in his conversations on how to deal with indwelling sin, he talks a lot about sloth. That word comes up over and over in his writings. He uses a couple of verses to talk about this. Hebrews 6, 11 through 12 says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, that you may hold on faithful until the end. Well, in order for that to happen, you cannot be sluggish. He talks a lot about 2 Peter chapter one, which says this, 2 Peter 1 his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything we have, we need. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's that first picture. We want to partake of the divine nature. We want the life of God inside of us. And everything's been given us to have that having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires, for this very reason, because we want the life of God, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Make every effort. John Owen would say that sloth is really a lack of thought, a lack of concern, or a lack of effort in our spiritual life. A lack of thought. How much are we thinking about our spiritual lives? A lack of concern, a lack of effort in our spiritual lives. And then he gives this really interesting thought that one of the evidences of sloth in our spiritual life is how easily we're distracted or how easily we give up. Now, that's a, that's a, that, that, that could get a whole sermon, but the truth is, think about how easily we're distracted from time with God. Think about how easily we give up on things that matter to the Lord. I joke often as a pastor that it, it does not take much to get someone to miss church. I mean, if little Johnny, even remotely, we think he's going to have a sniffle, then we're going to stay home. We just need a me day. We need a family. It just doesn't take much to get people to miss church. It just, just not a lot of grit. <laughs> not a lot of just, 
determination and discipline in our spiritual life, that this matters to us and we're going to give ourselves to it. And John Owen points out that oftentimes that spiritual sloth is just evidence in how easily deterred we are. I think a great passage for this is Proverbs 24. If you're taking notes, write that down. Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34. Listen to this. It says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with needles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it, and I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And so here's just this wise observation of a field that's overgrown with thorns. The stone walls are broken down, and the reason is because of neglect. Now what I wonder is this. How many of you would say that your soul sounds a lot like the sluggard's vineyard? It's overgrown. It's not flourishing. The walls are broken down. And the reason is is neglect. The reason you have a, a ground covered and overgrown with thorns and a stone wall broken down is because of just simple neglect. And could it be that that's an evidence of our souls? See, the reason sloth is a deadly sin is, listen, spiritual indifference kills spiritual life. And so the reason this message is so important is because we tend to think about all the things we're doing that would hinder the life of God, all the negative things, the sins. But what if the primary hindrance is what we're not doing? It's just apathy. It's just the neglect of our souls. That leads us to James 4. James 4 began with a conversation on worldliness, which we had a few weeks ago. We said that worldliness is an idolatrous preoccupation with earthly things. And then we talked about pride, which we said is an idolatrous preoccupation with self. And in the awareness of how deep those passions run within us and how easy it is to be a friend of the world, we get this really good news in verse 6 that God gives more grace, meaning there is enough help for you to walk with Jesus. There is sufficient help for you to walk with Jesus. Everything you need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, has been given to us. God gives more grace, but it is not given to everyone. It's given to the humble. He resists the proud because the proud resist him. And so where it says there, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It is a call to live with this humble awareness of just how much we need God all the time, to not forget God, to not neglect God. Humility is manifested in how much we're thinking about God and how much we're seeing that we need God. And then, coming after all of that are nine commands. Nine commands. I would call them gospel commands, meaning that they are specific actions that are called for every believer. The gospel is not opposed to effort. The gospel is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. And so Ephesians 2 is very clear that we cannot boast in our salvation because that is something that was given to us as a gift. We cannot earn uh, our relationship with God. We cannot make ourselves right with God. We must trust what Christ has done that we could not have done. 
We trust the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ as the necessary payment for our sins and the means by which I can be made right with God. And so if you're on this kind of treadmill of works to get yourself right with God, you will die exhausted and separated from God because you have to humbly receive the gift of Jesus Christ. You call upon the name of the Lord, you say, Lord, I need you to save me, and he will. But let's be clear, once Christ saves us and we enter into that life, that is now a life in which we apply great effort to the cultivation of this new life God has given us. And so I, I think we, we've gone so far and we thank the Reformation for this that we cannot earn our salvation that we have forgotten the truth of Philippians 2, 12, and 13 that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in us to work and to will for his good pleasure. Meaning God works something in us but we work it out. God has put life in us. But we put great effort in the cultivation of that life. Second Peter 1, apply all diligence. Why? Because what matters more than this? What matters more in your life than your relationship with Jesus Christ? If our little picture there that we've been showing is real, then the reality is what coming out of you is what is being poured into you. And so this is not just about your healthy soul. This is about everyone else around you getting the life for the death that is flowing out of you. Everyone is affected by your relationship with Jesus Christ. What matters more than this? What matters more than your discipline and drive and desire to cultivate a healthy soul? Nothing matters more than that. It affects everything else. So these commands are driving us to be active, not passive, in our walk with Jesus Christ. Let's read these verses, starting in James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And here begins the series of commands. We're going to look at the first three this morning, the rest next week. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and draw near to God. Three gospel commands. For those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, submit to God, resist the devil, and draw near to God. Let's look at that first one there, submit yourself to God. I think the reason that's first is because submission to God is the practical outworking of humility. And so we might come to the end of the previous verses and say, okay, well, what does humility look like? What does it look like for me to be humble because I need God I need his help, I need his grace, I need God today. Well, if you need God's help in grace, be humble. Well, okay, what does it look like to be humble? Well, the beginning of humility is submission to God. It is the surrender of my life and my 
time and my money and my dreams and ambitions and hopes and everything I have to God is the submission of my life to God. This is the way life begins with Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. And so the first command of a believer is to submit ourselves to the will of someone else. The reason many people are resistant to give their life to Jesus Christ is because of this. They're fine with praying a prayer. They're fine with believing Jesus did something. They're just not fine with the full submission of my life to the authority of Jesus Christ. Meaning, I no longer rule my life. I'm no longer the king of my life. There's a wonderful gospel track for kids. Uh, it's by Matthias Media. The adult version is two ways to live, but the kids version is incredible. It's called Who Will Be King? And it begins with a picture of the world with this crown over it and the Lord is king and then an X through it and the removal of the crown there to over us because we want to be our own king. We want to be our own boss. We want to rule our own lives. And becoming a follower of Jesus Christ is removing the crown from ourselves and putting it back on Christ. That Christ is now king. He now rules. When I was growing up, there was this image that, that used to always be shown about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Where there is a seat in your heart. And the question is, who's sitting in that seat? Is it you or is it Christ? Who's, who's seated on the throne of your heart? Who's ruling? Who's reigning? Who's pulling the strings? Who's calling the shots? Who's in control and submission to God means that I'm submitting my will to God. That means, at the very least, I'm thoughtful about God. I'm, I'm thinking about what God wants me to do in this decision. I'm submitting my time to him, my money to him. All of it is his. I feel like in my generation, one of the positive things is this was hammered into our heads a couple of ways. But one was through this song that we sang at every single invitation and the reason we all knew it is because we sang it 38 stanzas at every invitation until someone came down. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. The beauty of the repetition of that song is the awareness that true salvation is not a submission of my mind, but a submission of my will. I mean, the devil believes and shudders, right? The devil knows that Jesus died and rose. What he will refuse to do is submit his will to Jesus Christ. Everything begins with submission. It is the practical outworking of humility, of recognizing that my time, resources, future, children, marriage, work is the Lord's. He has access to all of it. And what it doesn't mean is that at that moment he takes it all. It means that he has the right to it all. He doesn't just take it all, but he has the right to it all. Now, when we think about submission to God, and so I, I think one of the things I love about preaching I, and I love about the word of God is I love taking abstract spiritual concepts and trying to make them more practical. And so we have this idea of humbling ourselves before God. What does that look like? Well, it looks like the submission of our will. Okay, well, what does that look like? <laughs> what, is, what does it look like daily to submit my will to Jesus Christ? Well, I think that's the next two things. 
So submission is the practical outworking of humility, resisting the devil and drawing near to God is the practical outworking of submission. So if you want to talk about what a life looks like that submits to God, I think it's the next two commands. Look at them. Resist the devil and he will flee from you and draw near to God. That's what it looks like to live submissive to Christ, to resist the devil. What that means is this. To stand against the devil's attempts to get you to submit to his will. So spiritual warfare, get this down, spiritual warfare is always a battle for supremacy. Spiritual warfare is a battle for supremacy. Who's going to rule? Who's going to be king? Who's gonna, he's going to rule over you. And there's only two options. You are either being ruled by Christ and his will or you're being ruled by the devil. There's, there's no middle ground you're being ruled by one of those other things. If you're being ruled by your flesh, then the enemy's winning. That's not being ruled by the spirit. You can't be ruled by the spirit and the flesh at the same time. And there are not other options. So you're either ruled by the spirit or by the flesh. And so this idea of being submissive to God begins with our active resisting of the authority of the devil who longs to control us. So what is temptation? Temptation is a battle for supremacy. Every temptation is a question, who's going to win? Who's going to rule over me? I'm a slave to what I obey. The whole book of Romans talks about this. So I'm a slave to that which I obey. So am I a slave to Christ? Does he rule and reign? Or am I a slave to the enemy? The idea of resisting there means to stand against something. We saw those words in Ephesians 6, to oppose, to withstand his purposes. To decide that I'm not going to submit to the authority of the devil over my life. I'm not going to let him rule. So think about this. If I'm not actively being ruled by Christ, then I'm passively being ruled by the devil. That's just true, because there's no other option. And I think about this in terms of 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, which says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, so resist him firm in your faith. Mean the devil has no authority over us unless we give it to him. He has no ultimate victory over us unless we give it to him, but the more we give to him, the more he takes from us. Ephesians 4.27 talks about giving no place to the devil. That's where we, if you've ever heard that phrase, giving a foothold to the devil, it comes from Ephesians 4.27. What it means is this. Imagine that picture of your heart that we looked at, and you know how it was divided up into little categories. Imagine that what it's like to give into temptation is then to take little areas of our life and to give the enemy a foothold in them, to have some authority over them, so he then comes to rule and reign in little areas of our heart. And so there's little areas of our heart, all of it's a battleground, it's all warfare, but there's areas of our heart in which we're not resisting the devil, and so the devil comes to get a foothold, he comes to get a space there, he begins to get territory, and what he wants to do is get more and more and more and more territory. Our heart is the battleground in which this war is being waged, and I think what concerns me about spiritual apathy is that if we're not thinking about the devil, if we're not engaging with the devil, if we're not actively standing against the devil, then how in the world would we ever be winning this? I mean, that seems like a strange thing to say, doesn't it? But 
If we're never thinking about spiritual warfare, if we're never thinking about temptation, if we're never thinking about the way in which the enemy wants to ruin your life and steal your affections and your heart and your desire and your dreams and win every child and win your marriage, if we're not thinking about that, how are we winning that? Like this is a command to resist the devil. So my question for you is, how often are you doing this? How much are you thinking about the fact that there is a battle going on for my soul and I must by faith stand against it to protect the ground that Christ died to take? He shed his blood to win the ground of my heart and soul and he wants to fill it with life. But every time I give into temptation, I'm giving it back over to death. And so submission to God looks like an active engagement with sin and temptation. An active engagement in standing against the desire of the enemy to rule over you. And the promise is here that if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Meaning you don't lose the battle because you're having to, but because you're not fighting we lose the battles most of the time. Having the authority to win those battles, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, by the way, this is Ephesians 1 and 2. We are not only buried with Christ and risen with Christ, we are ascended with Christ above all rule and power and authority and dominion, which means because of our union with Christ, we too have authority over the spiritual forces of darkness. We're ascended with Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We have authority over all of those things, but we can't wield that authority unless we fight and resist the devil. And as strange as it seems, part of the, the goal of this message today is to get you to think more about the battle that he's being waged for your soul and every moment of life is the enemy trying to just get more and more territory in your life and you must stand against him because it is a battle for supremacy. Who is going to rule and reign in your heart and in your home? And so to get the grace of God, to get the help we need, we submit ourselves. That submission looks like I'm standing against the one who wants me to submit to him. We resist the devil and then we draw near to God. It's the next command. We turn from the enemy and we turn towards God. I mean, I, I tried so hard to think about this more deeply, but it's hard because there's just something really simple here. <laughs> Draw near to God. You get close to Jesus. You spend time with Jesus. And as much as I thought about it, the more I just went back to the fact that, that motivated by desire for life and abundant life and no longer wanting to submit myself to the authority of the enemy who wants to bring death, wanting to get all of the death out of me and all the life in me, I just come close to Jesus and every time I make a decision to come close to Jesus, he makes a decision to come close to me. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. We did a series, uh, I don't know, a long time ago on uh, what it meant to understand the presence of God. And this is such a clear passage for me because we think about the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere, that's true. But God comes near to us in his manifest presence. He comes near to us as we draw near to him. So as we get close to God, what he gets close to us. And as we choose to make steps towards him, he's there and he's ready and he's available and he's got everything we need, Second Peter 1, for life and godliness, but it's available to those who want to go get it. 
And so that's why I'm not convinced that hurry is the issue. I think apathy is the issue because if we wanted it, we have the time to go get it. We just don't want it. Or we don't understand the significance of it, that it is a war of life and death. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. If you're taking notes, write down two words. Philippians 1.27, I think two words to summarize this would be this. Standing and striving. Those words are both in Philippians 1.27. Standing and striving. I think this is resist the devil and he will flee and draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We take our stand. So when we talk about spiritual warfare, the issue is almost always standing, standing, standing. So we see it here. We see it in Ephesians 6. Stand. Take your stand. 1 Peter 5. Stand. That word stand is a military word, meaning I'm going to protect the ground that has been given to me. So that's spiritual warfare. God has sent Christ to die and shed his blood that he could win the ground of my heart. And so he's purchased it. And now I'm going to take my stand and not let the enemy come and get a foothold. So every time I stand against the enemy, I'm saying, you don't have any right and authority here any longer. You don't belong here. This territory belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and he's got life and you've got death and I'm not going to exchange this life for that death. I'm not going to exchange freedom for slavery. So I take my stand by faith. I know who I am in Jesus Christ. I know the authority I have over the enemy and I take my stand actively, not passively, actively standing against the enemy because it's a battle for my soul. And then I strive, meaning I then advance to get more territory. I keep moving. That's a athletic word that means to, to get, to, to win, to work hard, to win. The strenuous effort it takes to win the prize. And so both of those postures are the postures of submission. The standing against the tactics of the enemy and the striving towards fullness of life in Jesus Christ. Submission to God is standing and, and striving. I want to close with a word picture for you that I think will help. I want you to think about the difference between the garden and the wilderness. The garden of Eden and the wilderness of Jesus' temptation. The situations could not be more different. In the garden, there is fullness of life. There is, there is lushness. There is an abundance of food and, and water. And uh, there is intimacy. And there is relationship between Adam and Eve. There is community. There's just fullness. It's abundance. It's green. It's flourishing. Everything is there. And then in the wilderness, there is Jesus alone. And there is nothing green. It's, it's a desert place. And although the situations could not be more different, in some ways the situations are exactly the same because there's the same adversary seeking in both contexts to win. The battle for supremacy. And so he goes to Adam and Eve and questions the word of God, and questions the goodness of God. The enemy knows the word so much better than you do. And so he quotes the word almost correctly he does it with Jesus and with Adam and Eve and so he takes something that sounds good and he says the Lord doesn't want you to be happy he doesn't have life for you and in that moment Adam and Eve choose to not resist the devil and not draw near to God and what reigns in them now is death death now reigns and then here's Jesus who receiving the same temptations it's all a temptation for authority 
stands against him. He takes the word of God and he stands against the enemy. He calls the enemy what he is, a liar, and he protects the territory and he knows what God has called him to do. And so he takes his stand and then he draws near to God and the angels who removed Adam and Eve for the garden now come and minister to Jesus in the wilderness. And as he takes his stand and he draws near to God, the result of that now is life is reigning. Life is reigning in Jesus. And life is reigning enough because it is always a battle of death and life. And if you want the life of Jesus, we stand against the enemy and resist him and then draw near to God. And God has given us these two pictures of the first Adam and Jesus, the second Adam, the first who failed and the second who succeeded And we are united in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, so that his wilderness victory can also be our wilderness victory. Do you get that? That like we can stand in the authority that we have in Christ Jesus. We can stand on the word of God. We can resist the devil. We can draw near to God. And what I would say to you is that is not some obscure idea that might happen to you sometime in a very weak moment. That is every moment of the life of a believer. That's life. Like it is a constant battle for supremacy. And many of us are losing not because we have to, but because we're just not fighting. There is very little spiritual desire and drive and discipline. But listen to me, this is a war for your soul. It is a war of life and death. It is a war I desperately want you to win. But spiritual indifference kills spiritual life. Everything you need for life and godliness has been given to you. You have everything you need to stand against the enemy. You have everything you need to draw near to God. And it's a decision of life and death. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.